0: are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.
1: Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and uh, the Finding Genius Foundation. I have a guest, as they say, third time is the charm. So I have uh, David Only, he's an associate lecturer, he's part of an organization called Polier Politics and International Relations, uh, part of the University of Adelaide in Australia and uh, he's, he's got a lot of great things to talk about. Today I want to go into uh, his perception of when there's a war going on, you know, what's it like from the perception of, let's say, a soldier, perception of a civilian, that perception of, uh, you know, a general or other people in the military, of the government, et cetera. So David, welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me again.
1: Well, excellent. Well, tell me about your thoughts on conflict. And when did it first hit you that there's more than one uh, perception of what's going on in a conflict? And, you know, when when did this realization come to you that there's a lot more going on than just one thing? And, a, a, you know, a nation or a, whoever's in a conflict... Um, has a lot of different perspectives all baked into one.
2: I think for me, the real wake up call that there was so much more going on was really when I was probably in my early 20s, and so many of the people I had started university with had decided not to finish university as civilians, but to go and, you know, become army officers and finish their degrees at the Australian Defence Force Academy and starting to just talk to them about what they were being trained for and how it was so much more than had ever been part of a film or a book about World War II or Vietnam and that I heard a wonderful comment one day uh, from an officer when I was in Canberra over there for an event for one of my friends when he was graduating and this officer was saying that the problem is that normally now militaries fight the last war and then get in trouble and then realize that war has changed again and I remember thinking that was the most amazing comment hang on isn't war war? Well, if someone here is telling me we're in this peaceful period of the new world order in the 1990s, we've just had the first Iraq war. That looks a little bit different. Actually, it turns out it was a lot different. What does this mean that even they know within the organization that there is a huge risk that they will always be prepared for the last war, not for the next. And that really set me on a path of just constantly, quietly being interested in all the things that contribute to that realization.
1: So that means that I don't think the military would always be looking ahead, but is the military just very conservative? And that's why they'll think, okay, we did this last time, it worked. We're going to stick
2: with it. It's not just a military problem. It's largely a public sector problem. And that is that when you're spending your country's money and resources, you have to make a really good justification for it. And militaries are normally slightly more conservative than the society as a whole, but not as conservative as people think they are. And you really, you've got to look at the difference in the US defence budget versus everywhere else. The US defence budget is huge even when it's in a a sort of a smaller year in terms of proportion of the budget. There's greater potential there. But when you're in peacetime, you can make a solid argument for the piece of technology that is necessary for future war, but not necessarily how you're going to use it. So the the technology creates jobs, the technology means that parliaments are happy because you get more factories building more things, you get more economic activity. But if you say, no, actually, you've bought us this new plane or this new ship or this new tank, but we want to go out and do 150 days a year of hardcore live fire training to work out all the different ways it can be used and to go, okay, if we had to counter this new bit of technology... What are all the interesting ways we could think to counter the new thing we've got so we're prepared? So in reality, there's two potential bills. One is for new technology, and one is for the training and time and the flexibility to use it well. And consistently what we see across the developed world, you know, where most of the money is spent, is that money gets poured into the new toy, but not into the adaptive process of being able to use it creatively and working out how to counter a piece of technology like it
1: That's interesting so so when you come up with new technology it's not enough just to do that but you also have to think of all right how would you counter this
2: precisely then i would
1: think you'd have to set up scenarios you know red team blue team and have them both use the technology to see what kind of creativity is emergent from there and what surprises there are before you deploy it before we continue The ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. And you have to do that in a
2: safe-to-fail environment, and that's the problem when you're using public resources. How many times are you going to be allowed to break you know, a multi-hundred-million-dollar device to work out what it's capable of or how it can be attacked? So red teaming is really important. But at the end of the day, the big problem often with red teaming is the red team are people from the same organization, from the same training, from the same promotion path. And this is where we get into the huge problem about preparing for future war. And it was really first outlined, you know, in English for the modern world in the early 1950s, where Samuel P. Huntington was working on his PhD thesis, which as a book, ended up being called The Soldier in the State. And he predicted that World War II had been a citizen-soldier's war. If we look how many of the brilliant officers in World War II were civilians at the beginning of it, not already soldiers. It was fine talent, promote fast, leave creativity alive. But by the end of the war, the level of complexity, like as D-Day is being planned, is immense. So after World War II, The military becomes an all-professional military, or at least the officer corps, the planning staff is all professional. So by the early 1950s, you're getting a professional way of thinking about war and thinking about how to prepare for war, where... Unless during an existential threat, you're no longer moving really radically different creative people from civilian to junior officer to mid-level officer to senior officer quickly. So if we put it in context, General Marshall in the US did a huge exercise in the late 30s where he had retained, retrained a lot of the senior US officers and any officer who didn't perform well in that exercise was sacked. Now, that was fantastic in that at the beginning of World War II, the U.S. didn't have enough senior officers. But what it did have was a clear path for progress for young officers who hadn't failed, who showed they were cognitively adaptable. So during World War II, it was not unusual to have colonels, even generals, in their you know early 30s, which now would be seen as you know yeah. just crazy and impossible. So by the mid-50s, what we're seeing is an ossification of professionalization that there is starting to be a class of people called military officers who are selected at 18 or 19 to go to a specific university to get a specific education, to then be promoted. So if you can build flexibility into that system, you're fine. But in the main during the Cold War, because we were preparing for mass tank battles, mass helicopter gunship battles, or nuclear Armageddon in Europe, that was an ossified environment. So there's always stuff going on in the periphery. So there was always a proportion of special forces. And yet most special forces units were demobilized after World War Two because they frightened the conventional military elite and they frightened the political elite. Because if you thought up something, they would find a way to do it. And it really raised big questions about what was possible and if it was moral and if we should even do it.
1: So what does is, what is warfare look like nowadays? I, I would think a lot is cyber war. And I mean, it, it's probably morphed incredibly from before. What's it like today and what are militaries doing to respond to it?
2: Well, this is the interesting thing. So we'll, we'll jump back to 9-11 because it's a good way to show the transformation. The militaries that on, you know, September the 11th, 2001, get told either you're in the U.S. military and you're about to go to Afghanistan, or at least that's everyone's assumption, because, you know, that's where Osama bin Laden is. Or the allied militaries who go, okay, we're going to get called into something, are militaries who were trained for these conventional wars that had a lot of peacekeeping experience. But in the main, when they were doing peacekeeping, they were helping countries who wanted help. So most militaries for a long time had not really done hot, violent warfare, and peacekeeping wasn't a guide. To what it would be like to go into countries that don't really want you there and are culturally radically different. So what we see once Afghanistan and Iraq kick off is a, max, a mass exodus of senior officers who do not have the skill set to function in the new world. What, we what you have, mean,
1: exodus. I mean, they were replaced or they were kept. They deployed? got to the
2: end of their careers and didn't sign up for another three to six year term.
1: Oh, what, so more, because they felt like I, I just can't function. They couldn't in this deal new reality.
2: Yep. Now, how many of them were pressured is anyone's guess, and I wouldn't like to say anyone pressured them because people at this level take huge pride in doing the job well and looking after their people. So if they feel they can't do their job well and they can't look after their people, I think a lot of these people probably left because quite simply they understood they were not up to this new world. So what happens simultaneously in Iraq and Afghanistan is it's realized that whatever is going to work has to be worked out on the ground has to be worked out by junior officers, by sergeants. Now we've already seen the beginning of a shift to this, and I'll use American examples because, you know, most of your audience will be American. Early 1990s, commander of the US Marine Corps, General Krulak, writes a short article called The Strategic Corporal, where he describes a situation where a corporal commanding a squad is going to have to go from peacekeeping and aid delivery to a hostile environment and high-intensity conflict in under 15 minutes. And they've got no officer, they've got no ability to get reinforcements, and this corporal is going to have to make the decisions that keep the level of violence to a minimum if possible. But if it come time for violence, how do you unleash what you need to get the job done but then stop the violence again? And one of the reasons in militaries we have officers and non-commissioned ranks is officers give the orders to unleash violence, lower ranks unleash the violence, and you keep the orders and the activity of unleashing violence separate. It's, it's critically important that the person giving the order to unleash it isn't also participating in it, if you want to be able to stay calm and stop the violence. So Krulak was preparing in 1992-93, even before Black Hawk down in Mogadishu, that a 21- and 22-year-old corporal with 7- or 8-19-year-olds at his back was gonna decide when to light up a militia, but also when to tell his squad to stop. Now the Marine Corps went down this path and what it meant is when Afghanistan and Iraq happened, the Marines did better than the US Army because they'd already begun to trust very junior leaders to make bigger and bigger decisions on the ground in real time.
1: Yeah, you know what it's we- funny when I've watched I don't know if well the military think this, but when I've watched, you know, movies about conflict and you see the the head officer either participating or not participating. And when they don't participate I would think that the the soldiers would be like, oh, they're just sitting there in the office doing nothing and we're giving our lives. Maybe they don't. I don't know if they're not. But like you gave a different perspective, if the the head person does participate, then who is the calm head that's overseeing everything and routing people?
2: So what you really see in Iraq and Afghanistan is that the young lieutenant is 20 meters back from the firefight calling in air support talking to other units, getting the medivac if it's necessary, basically keeping everything organized in the bigger picture. But because the intensity of you know the violence was so high in Afghanistan and Iraq, that lieutenant might have the mic against his face and have his weapon up and still be in the firefight, or he's potentially going to die along with his platoon.
1: Yeah, what's been discovered to be a better way to do things? Keep the head person separate and calm and collected, or what was the best? Thing?
2: In the main, you want them near enough, but not directly involved. But the level of intensity has got so high, they now have to be involved. So what it means is the pressure now on junior officers, you know, in combat is immense because they're both having to participate because the violence is so extreme, but also having to do all those things of correlating and organise what's going on. And if we look, this was a case where they were having to invent stuff as they went along in Afghanistan and Iraq because the doctrine didn't work. So by 2004…
1: instrument, you know, members of a squad and the head person? But I guess then you have like too many cooks in the kitchen, people that are literally far away that couldn't if they wanted to. Is that a good idea to have them watched or no?
2: Well, you always ideally want supervision one step removed. That's why someone like a lieutenant is always going to be on the radio. But it would have been initially say three lieutenants with three platoons on the radio to their captain a little bit further back. Now the thing is each of these lieutenants could be talking to someone, you know, in an F-16 or, you know, or some other plane that's about to come over and destroy, you know, 50 square meters of buildings. So the platoon don't get overrun. They're about to go danger close. So in, you train for ideal situations, then you adapt to reality so the reality of afghanistan and iraq was sergeants had to step up and look after their squads corporals well sorry their platoons you know corporals had to step up even more lieutenants had to step up even more captains had to step up even more the intensity of what everyone was doing went through the roof and yet in afghanistan and iraq you know within a year in both places it was clear that you know western forces weren't winning how do do you
1: deal with the the legal side of things i've heard just anecdotally like I don't know, every shot has to be approved. I mean, I mean, has it gotten ridiculous in terms of the legality of war? Are they, you know, they made it into like a courtroom battle
0: instead of a real battle? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
2: In the main, wars tend to start with you can take a legitimate shot if you can see it. And that's always the case. There is always rules around you know, how to take what is considered, you know, a legitimate shot, but they tend to get more and more limited as you start trying to rebuild a country or empower that population. So in Afghanistan and Iraq, in both cases, initially, if troops needed to take a shot to be alive and to get rid of the, you know, the opposition who were doing harm to the population or them, they could take it. By 2009, 2010, the rules of engagement have got tighter and tighter, and that if someone on the other side has had a go at you earlier, but they now don't have a weapon in their hand, you can't drop them.
1: It's kind of great. I mean, you think it's a good idea? It seems to be foolish.
2: It's a strange combination of: Do you want to be effective on the battlefield, or do you want to be seen as fighting more as ethically as possible? And how do you balance those two things?
1: So, I mean, what are some insights from from that balance that have come for some conflicts?
2: Well, what tends to happen, and again, we'll move through 2004 onwards because it's a great way to set this up for you. So, 2004, you know, really every country assisting in Iraq and Afghanistan realizes we're losing. And the big shift at that point is to move towards far more of a networked model of warfare, where you start integrating special forces, intelligence, uh, other agencies to all work together. So in American terms, the father of this, you know, the, the person that most of your listeners will recognize is Stan McChrystal. Who probably becomes the most important special forces general in modern history for transforming it from stovepiped hierarchy to network where everyone works together as part of task forces and everyone brings to the table what they've got. But more importantly, you know, Stan McChrystal deliberately gets rid of as much of the hierarchy as he can. He will simply say to a subordinate or someone on a task force from a different agency, can you take on this role? If the person says yes, he's like, right, if you've got a question about if it's moral or ethical or if you need me more resources, come and see me, otherwise I trust you. And you can share information with anyone else in the task force, even though you're in different units from different branches of the military or from different intelligence agencies. Once you move special forces to a networked model, special forces pretty much annihilate that generation of insurgents in Iraq and that generation of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. So it made a
1: huge difference.
2: Monumental. That's great. But of course, when you have a monumental impact like that, what does your opposition do?
1: I guess they become more networked themselves, or I don't know what they do.
2: They happily sit in jail and wait for you to leave because they know you will. So something most Americans don't understand is the vast majority of senior people in ISIS, whether we want to call it ISIS or Daesh. We'll go with ISIS because that's what most Westerners know it as. Daesh is what most of the Arab world call it. Most of ISIS were sitting in jails, having been captured by Allied forces and put in Iraqi jails and just went, well, the Americans, the Australians, the Brits, they'll go home and then we will take over. I don't want to fight them. I've watched enough of my friends die. I will just sit here in jail. It's not great. And when they leave, we will take it back. And guess what? You know, the main rollout from Iraq was 2010. By 2012, they'd taken half the country. So the hu- the huge lesson of the modern world and modern war is you can't win a war with violence unless you are prepared literally to annihilate a population, which no one with any moral compass is willing to do. And I will point out here for your listens, listeners that the greatest part of the moral compass is the military. It's the politicians well, actually, in the modern I- context who are expedient, not the soldiers.
1: Well, I mean, I guess the scary thought is, are there any nations or groups that – appear to have no conscience, they would annihilate every last one of their opposition.
2: Who is that? You know, if you take most failed states in Africa, where the military has a coup every 10 to 12 years, and happily destroys entire minorities, but then that is not a professional modern military, as Samuel P. Huntington was describing in the 1950s. It's a gang pretending to be a military.
1: But are there any major players? Like, you know, do you think China has a moral compass or you think they'll just do anything and they have no, nothing holds them back? Like, are there any larger countries that, that are truly dangerous?
2: Russia is willing to use incredible levels of violence if it can morally justify the end. So they firmly believe that the means justify the end. So if you look at when they you know, bombed Grozny literally into oblivion in the 1990s, and then I think again in the early 2000s, their thing was, well, you lot won't stop fighting, so we'll take your city away. And they did. Now, they also spent the money to rebuild the city, which meant it employed all the young guys to build the city again, rather than to fight. Now, who knows what the civilian casualty rate for that was, would have been horrific. If we look at, say, the People's Liberation Army in China, where the most valuable trait appears to be that you will follow orders, based on the fact that the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, has no moral compass, why would the PLA be allowed to have one? Whereas what we see in modern Western militaries founded on the ideas of professionalism that Samuel P. Huntington was writing about in the 50s is a huge part of military education is the ethics to stick with the rules of war and the rules of engagement and to fight war in a way where your moral compass stays intact. So one of the big interesting things discovered in Iraq and Afghanistan is that post-traumatic stress is one kind of injury, but there's a whole other kind of injury called moral in. And moral injury is where a soldier has been asked to do something or has had to do something to survive or has seen something so morally repugnant that they cannot get that stain off of their moral compass. You know, the classic example, and it's a brilliant example, is a young US lieutenant who was leading his platoon through Baghdad and a 50 caliber round from 800 meters away went through his sergeant and him. You know, they didn't even hear the round, just blat. A uh, 50 caliber round is about the size of your thumb to put it in context.
1: Okay. So he basically
2: looks at his sergeant. His sergeant's got a hole through the center of his chest the size of a a basketball. He as the l tell goes to, you know, the lieutenant goes to grab his sergeant. He realizes his sergeant is probably already gone. Then he looks down and realizes he's got a similar-sized hole in his thigh, and he's starting to crumple. And the last thing he sees is his 19-year-old medic who's gone, you know, ghostly white, looking back and forth between the LT and the Sarge going, who can I save? And what caused him a full-blown mental breakdown four years later was not the injury. It's that his 19-year-old medic had never, should never have been in the situation of having to try and pick who to save. Oh,
1: I thought it would be stuff like, uh, you know, the the military was torturing and killing children or like systematically like burning or torturing people. I thought those would be the... uh, the conditions under which people would be more traumatized
2: put it this way most units won't do it they will humiliate so again if we look back at Abu Ghraib we see the pressure here of contracted intelligence people you know who don't have uniforms don't have rank don't have responsibility going and saying to 20 21 year old National Guard MPs hey I need to find out what that Iraqi guy knows and if we don't find out, it's your buddies who are going to die next week. So, can you rough him up a bit before tomorrow? So, what we see often is an insidious level of pressure in the new environment, not from people in uniform where ethics matters, but from contractors who are simply there to get paid. And that is the huge shift in Afghanistan and Iraq, too, is that we move to a world where there just aren't enough people in uniform. And we have to start using contractors, and contractors often come from militaries or come from intelligence agencies, but they're no longer there in uniform, you know having to abide by similar rules of engagement. they're there as freelancers they're there to get paid.
1: yeah, is this a way then for the military to offload the moral burden of doing bad things?
2: No, it's a way for the political elite uh, the political elite to offload the moral burden that militaries don't want to offload.
1: Oh, so they could say it wasn't our military guys that did it, it was these damn contractors and blame it on them.
2: Well, well more importantly, they'll go we hired contractors we don't know what they did cuz they're contractors so what you see pretty much is the less reality of violence politicians understand the more willing they are to use it so in western democracy an old
1: analog is like mercenaries hiring them and saying well the mercenaries they're going to do whatever they need to do
2: yeah whereas of course we've even changed the name now we have private security companies so you know if we look you know historically when democratic parliaments were full of people who'd been involved in war They were very reticent to use violence. The less understanding or experience of violence and war they have, the more willing they are to use the tool because they simply want an endpoint. And this means that, you know, private security companies, most of you know, the really terrible things that appear to have happened in Iraq and Afghanistan were related to mercenaries. Now, here in Australia, we just had a major inquiry into Australian special operations forces. It turned out that one squadron within the special air service regiment, about 23 people within, you know, that unit killed 39 Afghanis out of hand. And they're going to be, you know, that's going to be investigated and brought to trial. But you know, if yeah, we looked gonna, at what private security companies did, it would be infinitely worse.
1: Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So not only will private security companies do the dirty work, I guess, but are they upheld to the same standards no. or is it just swept under the rug?
2: No, it's it swept under And this gets back to your earlier question of how did war change as things go on. So by 2009, 2010 in Iraq and Afghanistan, the rules of engagement are getting harder and harder for soldiers to win. Like their training is, you're paying me to win on the battlefield. That's what I've signed up to do. We've got legitimate orders for it, but your rules of engagement are making it nearly impossible. And it appears that's the point where one of two things happen. You know, Military personnel either get to their end of their contract and don't renew because they feel, well, it's impossible to do my job, or that's when they start bending and breaking rules. You know, the other side that by 2009 and 10 we're starting to work out is that in modern warfare, you don't want to face a modern Western military if you're an insurgent in a straight up fight, you're going to die in less than 10 seconds. So you want to use an IED or you want to give a kid a suicide vest and tell him to walk towards Western troops or you want to use a truck bomb or you want to do some other thing and then you want to run away. So as the insurgents get better and better at not getting in a direct fight, you know Western forces suffer higher and higher casualties and are less and less able to respond effectively.
1: And then there's political cover and moral cover by using these private uh, security companies to to do what needs to be done.
2: Yeah. And in the main, what you realize at this point is, well, if you've been using special forces for six years to kill the leadership of terrorist organizations and insurgent organizations, and all you're doing is resulting in the leaders being younger and more traumatized themselves from the years of war, making their organizations more dangerous. What's the point? So Al-Qaeda got worse. ISIS got worse. The Taliban got worse. The more effectively leaders with experience and some degree of calmness got killed, the more we got young leaders whose whole lives had been violent trauma, and they can't conceive of any way to continue other than violent trauma. So we get some incredible responses to this, you know, from some militaries. So again, we were talking about the Marine Corps with General Krulak and the Strategic Corporal in the '90s. Well, General Mattis does his own amazing thing in, I think it's about 2007 or eight. He's sick of Marines getting ambushed in this new world where no one will get in a stand-up fight, but they'll try and, you know, bleed out a platoon as effectively as they can with a bomb. And he gets a whole pile of very capable Marines to investigate. Okay, we know that tons of platoons will have some kid from some terrible suburb or city or town who's seen violence, unfortunately, his whole life. And that kid's almost got a sixth sense for when things are about to go really bad. And if you've got one of those kids in your platoon and the corporal and the sergeant and the lieutenant trust that kid, that when the kid says, hey boss, we're screwed, that's great. But that kid is likely to be fairly non-conformist, not so good at discipline, and probably not real comfortable dealing with authority. So the likelihood of that relationship being good. So what Matt said is, okay, what are those kids seeing? What are the veterans of multiple years of deployments seeing? Who, when we have a sergeant with that level of experience, they say to the LT, LT, we need to pull back or we're in monumental problem. And they came up with a program that in the military context is called Left of Bang in the civilian well sorry, in the military context it was originally called combat hunter, but it's come to be known as left of bang, and left of bang means you solve the problem before it explodes. And what the Marines started training for is different kinds of situational awareness, where if anyone in the unit sees something, you know, weird, what they call an anomaly, something that is sufficiently out of the order of normal that we need to think about it and respond to it, they must say, hey, boss, I've seen an anomaly, and describe it. And the rule is that as soon, doesn't matter if it's a squad, a lieutenant or a bigger, fo- or so a squad or a platoon or a bigger formation, the minute they've seen three anomalies, they must take action. They, they can't just go. So the classic example is, precisely, the classic example is, you know, platoons about to walk into a marketplace in Afghanistan that is never great. But, you know, they've not been shot up in there for the last year. And they walk in and go, why is there young guys leaning on walls just outside the market looking bored? Mm. Okay, anomaly number one. Why is there families packing up their carts early to head home? Anomaly number two. Okay, it's market day. This is the day there should be a reasonable number of women and children in the market. Why haven't any of the traders bought their women and kids? Right, three anomalies. What do we do? get the hell out of the market, it's going to blow up. But to to make that a deliberate thing. So what you see as the war in Afghanistan and Iraq go on is militaries learn to get better and better at this kind of conflict where it won't be a direct stand-up fight, where even if special forces keep killing leaders, bomb makers, intelligence people from the other side, they get replaced tomorrow. Or... Yeah, there's a classic example early in Afghanistan where Al-Qaeda realized that the Americans were probably tracking them through their satellite phones and maybe even listening in. So they made an amazing pile of all their satellite phones and detonated it with a kilo of plastic explosives. Yeah. Just to make the point, we have all the time in the world. We can have a guy walk halfway across Afghanistan with a message because you'll go home and we'll still run the place. So time is one of those really important things. Politicians want things done by the next electoral cycle. So when planning was being done for the invasion of Iraq, the serious planning being done by the Pentagon was saying a minimum of 500,000 troops and a minimum of three years. And we have to literally become the police force and provide security and then help rebuild from scratch. What Donald Rumsfeld actually gave the military was not much over a 100,000 troops in one and a half years. So, you know, from day one, everyone knew essentially they were screwed. They would win on the way in. They could win the firefights. But, you know, within days of Baghdad being seized, what you see is these troops have no mandate to maintain law and order and people are starting to wander out in the streets and go, hey, I've got a grudge against that dude. You know, there's no more police force and the Americans or the Brits or the Australians aren't going to intervene. I'll just go kill that guy. Huh. Hey, those Christians down the end of the street. How about I go kidnap their eighteen year old daughter and actually offer her back for ransom or behead her? So one of the last things Saddam Hussein did was release all violent criminals in Iraq back into the population.
1: That's terrible. Why? Because it makes the it made the US look bad. Not only Instantly. that they were failing, but they were I guess. Seem to be failing. Well, also that they were, because of their presence, this kind of violence was happening and this kind of anarchy was happening, I guess they could be blamed. Or-
2: yep. So really what you see in this is that militaries need almost a whole extra stream where they keep creative people, even when they've been in planning for conventional warfare. So there's a, a very interesting young American military psychologist uh, called Murphy Danahy, who makes the point that they need two streams within officer training, one for people who are going to be brilliant at tactical operations and one who have a psychological predisposition for strategic operations. Now, the whole point of the selection and promotion path at the moment is all officers start tactical, and eventually you get to a rank where you have to deal with strategic things. Well, you've been selected, trained, and promoted because you've got a capacity to be brilliant at tactics. So when you get to strategic level, It's dumb luck if you're good. And what we can safely say is that it's dumb luck that all the allied professional armies who ended up in Iraq and Afghanistan had just enough good strategic leaders, but not good by training, good because it was somehow in their head and they were given enough freedom to turn we are about to lose into let's find a way out of this that's not a total disaster. And yet we could have a very serious debate about, whether anything meaningful was achieved in Iraq or Afghanistan.
1: Boy, this so, is like really complicated. Like, I didn't even realize that it's, it gets so crazy.
2: <laughs> well, now we get into the new level of crazy. And that is that the whole time that Australia, the UK, the US are involved in Afghanistan and Iraq, the People's Liberation Army in China has this amazing conference every year called What Can We Learn From Other People's Wars? Okay. And guess what they learned? What? Conventional warfare costs a lot. Probably try and avoid it. Modern oh. counterinsurgency, counterterrorism warfare is a nightmare. Probably don't do it. So they double down on cyber. They double down on intelligence. They double down on dirty tricks. They double down on economic warfare. They double down on what the you know professional Western military called utwa operations other than war. Okay. So so while the West has been bleeding in Afghanistan and Iraq. And transforming its militaries, which militaries have been transforming themselves out of necessity to get good at counterterrorism, better at counterinsurgency, more able to, you know, these kind of stabilization capacity building ops. The CCP and the Russians in particular have been going, let's not do any of that. Let's do everything else. So the first really amazing example we see of how much the Russians learned is Ukraine, where they never officially had Russian troops there. But when footage turns up of Ukrainian soldiers shooting, quote unquote, militia in the chest and these guys are rolling back and bouncing back up onto their feet because their body armor is so good and they're then turning around and after having been shot in the chest, taking an accurate body shot and killing the person who shot at them, you go, no, that's Russian special.
1: Yeah, so hybrid- I heard that they're used like, um, you know, that not only did they compromise, like, and in, in, so I guess I don't know if it was Ukraine or other places, but Russia, I guess, did a combination of cyber attack. To block Everything out all at once and then invading,
2: yeah. information operations, cyber, psychological ops, and they 've taken in a sense the private military, the private security angle, a whole extra level, so the russians the the, the best were well, the best publicly known example. Is, you know, a private military company called the Wagner Group. Now, the Wagner Group are so competent that in Syria, they turned up to battles with tanks. There were major battles in Syria between US special forces and the Wagner Group, so extreme that US special forces had to call in monumental airstrikes so they would not over be, you know, overrun and annihilated. Because, you know, Wagner Group fight like absolute top tier special forces with every toy that normally only a state would have. You know, the Wagner Group are being used to maintain Maduro's control in Venezuela. The Wagner Group are deployed all over Libya and Syria. Now, the Wagner Group is far bigger than any you know private military organization should be, unless, essentially, the Russians have normalised hybrid war to such an extent that this is just a normal part now of how the Russian military work. You train young guys, you put them through conventional special forces, they have a short career in Spetsnaz, conventional in uniform, bound by rules of engagement warfare, and then you move them on to Wagner Group, pay them more money, but you know they've now got no real support, no legal cover, and you know go out and wreak havoc in the world. And more and more, we're seeing that the Chinese are starting to think in similar terms. So listeners, if you want later, go look up a Chinese movie called Wolf Warrior. It's about the ex-Chinese special forces soldier saving the lovely Africans from the dastardly Western mercenaries. And uh, the Chinese happily paid to run this film all over Africa. They're essentially normalizing the idea of Chinese private military companies working all over Africa to secure Chinese projects.
1: So how because brutal are, are um, yeah, it's a, a crazy like amalgam of all kinds of things. What, um, I don't know, I mean, what, what are nations and people supposed to do if it's gotten to be like this? I mean, how do you, how effective and how deadly is the new hybrid form of, of war with these contractors?
2: Well, let's look from the cyber perspective You know, it appears the Russians got into major U.S. computers last year and no one knows if they just stole information or if they built permanent backdoors into many of your most secure systems. Okay, right. Chinese-sponsored hackers, you know, here in Australia last year took all the financial and passport details out of our top universities, all its staff and students. You
1: know what I thought of? This this is a side thing, but... You know how, like, I would say probably in the U.S. over time from different hackers, just about every single person's private information has been stolen. More than you, Yeah, so uh, I don't want to give ideas to anybody, but if hackers pooled their info and sat on it for a couple of years and then started using it, I don't think anyone would know, like, where this information came from. And it could be incredibly detrimental because I mean, it would be, yeah. I mean, do you think that that's happening or... Like, what well, are some I think something that people are aware about that you think of.
2: Something even more insidious is happening is again we've all seen the films where we, we you know we have the white hat hacker, you know busting in the computer to stop the dastardly thing happening at the last millisecond and then tracing where the dastardly, you know programmers are sitting somewhere in China or Russia. So you can either hit it with a tomahawk missile or a special forces team. What a load of rubbish. If a cyber team do their job well, they get everything they need, put a backdoor in your system, put corrupt information if they need to, and you never even knew they were there. The point of cyber, if it works, is they got everything they needed and you never even know they messed with your system. And I've not seen any political elite in the West yet speak honestly that that's actually what keeps everyone awake at night. Have the systems already been so corrupted and broken uh, that there is a constant feed to Moscow and Beijing of Western intelligence? And I would say the answer in a lot of cases is probably yes. Wow.
1: What, uh, what do you think will be the end game of, uh, you know, if, if various countries have this kind of intelligence? I mean, what, uh, what do you think is going to happen from here?
2: Okay, let's look at sort of places where warring kingdom type things went on for extended periods. So let's look at Renaissance Italy, where there was constant violence between city-states. Let's look at, you know, the 30-year war, the 100-year war in Europe. Let's look at low-level constant dastardly deeds dirty tricks and occasional violence was totally and utterly normal you know we had an artificially quiet period in the world in terms of violence between the napoleonic period and world war one where the big thing in the middle really was the us civil war which gave us an idea of how bad industrial warfare was you know we had big wars you know over existential threat you know, World War I was a ridiculous war that never should have happened. World War II was an existential threat to stop you know, fascism and Nazism and really set us up to then have to have the Cold War to stop you know, communism. What we're getting into now is a thing where violence has been privatized. Intelligence can do dastardly things. Uh, it could be a state actor. It could be a private actor. We're going to get into a state of permanent low to mid-grade violence and dirty tricks. And that doesn't fit very nicely with the bright sunshine world that our political elites tend to tell us are possible and that our technologists tell us, no, we're going to live in this beautiful technical world where we'll solve all our practical problems. No, we're in a world with limited resources and people who don't want to share and people who understand that if they can take it from you and you are stupid enough to let it happen, they feel no remorse for harm they do. We're returning to something far more historical far nastier and we are really not prepared for it because we've been lying to ourselves literally since the Cold War that if we can avoid nuclear Armageddon, other than that, we'll have a few proxy wars on the periphery. And other than that, we're post-war. How can you be post-war in a world with, what, seven and a half billion people? We're running out of water. We're running out of fossil fuel. We're running out of arable land rare earth elements are worth killing over. If yeah. we actually look at the state we're in, it I've, I've even
1: seen like avocado farmers in Mexico are, are being terrorized because of the money involved in avocado. Yeah, So that's turned into like a, you know, a war zone, which is crazy.
2: Well, again, you essentially have a, a state to the south of your country that, you know, we can call narco, but I suppose what we really need to call it is clientele. There's people with power and people who need protection. And it's got sort of a mask, a bit like a democracy.
1: So what do you think the world's going to look like, I don't know, the next 10, 20 years? Is it very important to pay attention then to... Dwindling resources because that's going to be the Kindle for like these, these low level persistent conflicts.
2: Yeah. Resources are going to be massively important. The other thing too is, you know, an interesting document got released in the last two weeks of the Trump administration. And it was interesting because it was a cabinet level document released, I think at least 20 years early, highly redacted. But the point it made was that, you know, the Pacific is the potential future battleground. And that the U.S. wants to work with its allies in that region and because the allies in the region have so much knowledge about the region and about how the Chinese Communist Party is behaving in the region, that they want input from allies. They want to be part of something that's cohesive, where they're a partner, not necessarily the leader. Now, that's an incredible thing to hear from the United States, and it certainly didn't come from Trump. It certainly came from smart people at the Pentagon. But the reality is we're going into a period where meaningful alliances, where if we say, if you're in trouble, we will back you. If we're in trouble, you will back us. We will share technology. We will sell resources. We will guarantee that our populations never starve. We will help with technology to purify water, improve land. It's not anymore just about the idea of putting you know, a force on a battlefield to fight another force, whether those forces are in uniform or not. It's about genuine strategic level partnerships to guarantee that things don't get worse. And if we're really lucky, maybe we can make them better.
1: So do you think in, uh, I don't know, in general, the world is, is headed in a good direction or you think it's going to, I mean, for it's going to be more stratified where certain people will live in, you know, protected areas uh, within countries, but uh, for the most part, more people are going to be exposed to violence and food insecurity and other problems.
2: I'll sort of take it a bit like an ink spot strategy in counterinsurgency. You start with an area, you consolidate, and you move outward. And my argument would be either rich, capable countries will wake up and do this, because you know the delusion of the nice modern world where we'll all get along. You know, The United Nations still seem to like to believe it. Lots of NGOs would like to believe it, but the evidence is all pretty much to the contrary. But we have immense amount of power to... Change the situation and make it better, but it's going to depend on countries coming together, working together, and the whole point with you know, an oil spot or ink spot strategy is you can keep growing you know, the blot of ink or oil out and including the next country that wants to be part of what you're building. And part of this is, you know, if you ensure the security and the stability of another place, not by dominating them, but by partnering with them, by including them, helping them, and making them part of sharing technology resources, you get a bigger and bigger space where life matters. We're looking after each other matters, where partnership really means something. So we have an incredible possibility of doing that, if we can get over the desire to dominate other people and instead see partners. Hmm.
1: Interesting. Well, very good, David. What uh, what resources do you recommend for people that want to learn more about uh, you know the state of conflict and the state of you know the new face of war and things like that? What can they look to?
2: Probably the most important book to read at the moment to understand the state of the world is Sean McFate's book *Goliath*, where Sean McFate has essentially argued that war as we knew it is over. Uh, Ian Bremer's book, Every Nation for Itself, is a good book to read to understand how and why we need to work together with not necessarily old allies, but countries who have similar goals and start working as partners. People need to understand the transformation in war and in militaries. Again, I'll give American examples for a largely American audience to understand it at the strategic level. End of any of Stan McChrystal's books about his career. Would be very helpful to understand it at a tactical level on the ground in Afghanistan, of you know, going through basically the disaster of modern, poorly conceptualized war. Uh, there's a wonderful book called Red Platoon about a US Army platoon in a tiny valley in Afghanistan who were overrun and fought back. To understand it from, say, the British context, there's a wonderful book called Sniper One, all about a sniper platoon who basically kept. You know, the Brits and UN personnel in a compound in Iraq alive for 110 days of siege by just taking long shots nonstop for 110 days. And what's wonderful about that book, it shows what well-trained 22-year-olds who are totally in the normal range can do. It's the huh. absolute contrast to the idea that we're now in special operations warfare. Um There's a brilliant British book called Painting the Sand, all about uh being a person who pulls IEDs to bits and removes explosives, being a demolition expert in the British military. There's a wonderful book written by a British paratrooper major called No Way Out about being given the authority to negotiate with the Taliban in a town and then NATO denying they'd ever given him the permission to do that because it wasn't official policy. So you see what is possible when you give a junior commander the power to change the world and then take it away. There's so many amazing books. And yeah, listeners, uh, I now have my own website, you know, davidolney.com.au. So it's David O L N E Y dot com dot AU. And if any of you would like a bit of a reading list, just fill in the contact form there and I'm happy to send you recommendations. And if there's a particular sort of aspect like which modern war, you know, which military, what kind of experience? I'll try and give you one or two books, or over time if people keep asking, I might make some mega list. That eventually, once I've got the mega list, I can just send it to Richard and he can whack up somewhere where it's easier for everyone okay. to find.
1: Well, you've given people a lot of stuff to read and look at. That's great. We're well, very good. You know, David, thank you again for coming. Third time was the charm, and you've got, I don't know, just a ton of great things to talk about. So, so thanks for being here.
2: Thank you very much for inviting me again, and thank you, listeners. And please go away and ponder. Don't go away and freak out.
0: If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.